You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. As we've said in this series, it's kind of been our refrain, our summary sentence for the entire series in the book of Acts. Acts is about the Spirit of God empowering Jesus' church to advance God's mission. And Acts chapter 8, as we'll see in just a moment, serves as an important progression in the early church. For the first time in this book, we're going to see the Spirit empower Jesus' church to advance God's mission outside of Jerusalem. Outside of Jerusalem. Now, we won't meet the first Gentile convert. Uh, that's a man named Cornelius, and it's Cornelius' family as well. We won't meet them until chapter 10. Uh, but here in chapter 8, as Philip goes to Samaria and then later meets a, a God-fearing Ethiopian on the road to Gaza, we start to see the spread of the gospel across really significant lines, lines that formerly would have been thought incomprehensible to, to break. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Acts chapter 8, and I'll begin there in verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution, his being Stephen's, we read about last week. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed." So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him for a long time, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he, had, he the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus." They then laid their hands on them, that is, Peter and John laid their hands on the Samaritans, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. 
Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. It's from Isaiah 53. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him, Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Eternal God, whose word silences the shouts of the mighty. Quiet now within us, every voice but your own. Speak to us now through the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we may be people who show Christ's love in lives that are given to your service. And it is in his name that we pray, and it is by your power alone that we ask these things. Amen. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 8 in three different parts this morning. We'll talk about persecution, then we'll talk about proclamation to many, and then third and finally, proclamation to one. So persecution, proclamation to many, and proclamation to one. So first, persecution. Persecution. Uh, On the day that Stephen is martyred, we read here at the beginning of chapter 8, a great persecution breaks out against the church in Jerusalem. Uh, Followers of Jesus are scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And as we read that, you might have heard this. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And if that sounds familiar, that's good, especially if you've been with us in this series, because that's what we heard at the very beginning of this book. Acts 8.1 recalls Acts 1.8. Jesus' commission in Acts 1.8 to the apostles at the beginning of this book where he says, you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So in Acts 1.8, at the beginning of the book, Jesus gives the what. In other words, here's what's going to happen. Here's your calling. Here's your commission. What's going to play out through the rest of this book? Acts 8.1 gives us some of the how. 
And as we read Luke's account throughout this book of the early church, we're meant to always be on the edge of our seat, always leaning in to find out how will God advance his mission in the world? How is that going to actually play out in real time? And what we learn is that it's often through suffering and it's often through hardship. It's through persecution even. It's often as God empowers his people and sustains his people through difficult circumstances as they continue to share the good news of Jesus wherever they find themselves, wherever they are sent. See, this really is God's mission. These really are God's purposes. It really is the Holy Spirit and not the plans or the programs of people that advance the gospel. The, the church in Jerusalem didn't have a meeting, for example, and decide, okay, remember, Jesus didn't just say Jerusalem like we've been doing. It's probably time for us now to get after the Judea and Samaria part of the plan. And so, Stephen, you'll die. Sorry, you're going to go down first. <laughs> Philip, then you go to Samaria. And then Prochorus and Nicanor, you go west, you guys go east, and so on. No, it's, it's martyrdom and it's persecution. It's people being scattered against their will. That's how Jesus' great commission, at least this very significant stage, this significant progress of it, is accomplished in, in the book of Acts. As we read there, the, the apostles themselves remain in Jerusalem. Uh, and so this persecution actually was likely specifically targeting the Hellenistic Jews. In other words, the Greek-speaking Jews who lived all around the, the Mediterranean world. The Hebraic Jews, those who spoke Hebrew and lived in and around Jerusalem, seemed to be left alone, not as targeted by, by this persecution. Otherwise, we would almost certainly here have another instance of the apostles themselves being arrested and imprisoned and brought to some kind of, of trial, but we, but we don't have that. But remember, those seven who were appointed to lead the distribution of food in Acts chapter 6, all seven of those leaders were Hellenistic Jews. They were the Greek-speaking, the Greek culture Jews. And so Stephen, one of them, has now been killed. The other six, including a man named Philip, who we'll learn more about in a moment, are among those persecuted or among those scattered around Judea and Samaria. As we hear more about Philip's life, though, remember, Philip is just one of many. He's only one of six of these other leaders, not to mention hundreds or even thousands of men and women who have believed the gospel, and now, for many of them, very early on in their own discipleship, in their own process of, of knowing about and following Jesus, are scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So an author named Michael Green calls them nameless amateur missionaries. Nameless amateur missionaries. As important as the apostles and the other leaders are, the Holy Spirit is really empowering the church, the whole church, Jesus' people, to go and to bear witness all over the, the known world. And friends, this is how God still works today in our world. Through church leaders, sure, but just as much through the, quote, nameless amateur missionaries. It's the saints, it's the people of God who are equipped to do the work of ministry. It's not just the leaders, not just the officers of the church. 
Christians are a kingdom of priests. There's what we call the priesthood of all believers. You, if you are in Christ, are a priest. You have a priestly role to play and ministry, work to do. Likewise, God still in our day works through persecution and works through all kinds of adverse circumstances to advance his mission. There's nothing wrong with having intentional plans or strategies as many churches, as many missions organizations do. Uh, we as a church, we have plans and strategies. We have dreams and hopes to, to be part of planting more churches in our region and all over the place. We have hopes and dreams and plans to equip you and the people of our church to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus here in this region. It's just that often the most effective, the most powerful examples of God's mission advancing happen through things that you and I would never pick, that you and I would never plan for ourselves. There's a reason that the church father, Tertullian, once said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. There's a reason that the most explosive growth in the church in China, for example, last century, came when almost all of the vocational missionaries were expelled, were made to leave. That's when the church growth exploded in China. It's the Spirit of God that advances the mission of God in the world. So what's our role? What's our role? Our role is to be faithful to Jesus. It's to be attentive to the Holy Spirit. And it's to trust that wherever the Father has sent us, and not only wherever, but however he has sent us there, whatever circumstances has led us to the place that we are, none of that is accidental. Or to put it this way, you woke up this morning in a place where God is not only at work within you, but is working and longing to work through you. Do, do you believe that? Did you wake up this morning with a sense of that? Can you, even as I say those words, can you perceive something of how God might be at work through you advancing his mission in the world today? Luke goes on then to trace Philip's story as really just one example of these many who were scattered. Uh, initially, Philip proclaims the gospel to many in Samaria, and then we'll see he proclaims the gospel to one on the road to Gaza. So second, let's look at proclamation to many. Proclamation to many. Philip travels down to Samaria. He heads north, uh, but when it says down to Samaria, that's talking topographically. Jerusalem is, has a higher elevation than Samaria. So he's heading north, but down to Samaria. Uh, and as he proclaims Jesus, as we read, his words are accompanied with powerful signs and wonders. Uh, he casts out demonic spirits. He heals many people. And all told, it brings great joy and has a really widespread effect in Samaria. In the process, we meet this man named Simon. Uh, Simon the magician, or Simon the sorcerer, as he's known. And we'll only take a minute on Simon today. He, he's a fascinating example of someone who professes faith in Jesus for all the wrong reasons. For all the wrong reasons. He's impressed by Philip's miraculous signs. He looks at Philip and goes, that's better than my magic. That's, that's something more than what I've been able to do. He eventually tries to buy the Holy Spirit's power from the apostles. The term simony, 
It's kind of an antiquated term in English, but the English term simony refers to commercializing spiritual things or specifically to buying a role, to buying an office in the church. This is the guy where we get that term from. Simon is what led to the term simony. And then when Peter rebukes him for trying to buy the the power of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't really repent. Did you notice that? Peter says, pray to the Lord. And instead of praying to the Lord, he says, can you pray for me? How about you pray for me? Pray that doesn't happen to me. Later church tradition, so it's not in Scripture itself, but later church tradition records that Simon went on to lead his own cult. He became an arch-rival of the Apostle Peter, and he actually was the author of many, if not all, at least according to one line of tradition, of the Gnostic heresies that plagued the church in the second century. Uh, So that's where Simon's life went, at least according to, to the tradition that's recorded for us. All of that to say... Do we come to Jesus for Jesus' sake, out of love for him, out of a desire to be known by him and to know and follow him? Or is Jesus to us just a means to some other end? Is he just a means to some other end? For Simon, Jesus was a means to position, recognition, power. He liked having the Samaritans hang on his every word and watch him with amazement. And now there's something better than his power there. And he's like, well, I want to keep my spot here. So let me have that power too. Jesus wasn't his God, in other words. Position, power were his gods. Maybe for you it's not position or power. Maybe it's a sense of moral superiority. That you're part of Team Jesus, unlike all those terrible people over there. Maybe it's because you think following Jesus guarantees you happiness or a blessed life, however you might be defining that. Whatever it may be, when the impure motives, when these corrupted intents of our heart are exposed, listen to Peter's rebuke or the rebukes of people like Peter and repent of those impure motives, repent of those corrupted intents. Let us be people who pursue Jesus for Jesus' sake and not for the sake of of something else. But back to the many Samaritans. Verse 12, they hear Philip proclaim the good news about Jesus, and it says many men and women are baptized. But then look down at verses 16 and 17, because I'm sure at least for some of you this was like, what in the world is going on? 16 and 17, the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they, Peter and John, laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. How is it possible to receive the word of God, to believe in the name of Jesus and be baptized, but to not receive the Holy Spirit? Back in Acts chapter 2, specifically verses 38 and 39, Peter's Pentecost sermon, he said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, there's not a separate event There's not a separate receiving of the Spirit. There's no mention here of needing the apostles to come and lay their hands on you in order to make that happen. So why is that the case here in Acts chapter 8? It's because Jesus has one church. And I'll explain that. I'll explain that. Jesus has one church. And for the early church to really understand that, for the Samaritans themselves to really understand that, 
They needed definitive evidence that the same gospel and the same Jesus and the same spirit was forming one new church comprised of both Jews and Samaritans. See, remember, there there was a thousand years of hostility between these groups of people. Samaritans were the descendants of the ten northern tribes of Israel. But they were were considered half-breeds by the southern tribes, by the Jews, because those northern tribes had intermarried with Assyrians and other people from the ancient Near East. And then in the 4th century B.C., the Samaritans set up their own rival temple on Mount Gerizim. They said, we don't recognize the temple in Jerusalem. That's your temple. We have our own up here. And they rejected the teaching of the prophets in the Old Testament. They only recognized Moses and the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament scripture, as authoritative. So as one scholar put it, the Samaritans were despised by the Jews as hybrids in both race and religion, both heretics and schismatics. And we see, if we read the gospel accounts in the New Testament even, we see that attitude reflected there. Jesus' parable, his famous parable of the Good Samaritan, is as scandalous as it is because of that thousand-year hostility. As is Jesus' interaction with a Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. The apostles James and John, brothers known as the sons of thunder, once wanted to call down fire from heaven on Samaria because they did not receive hospitality from the Samaritans. But think about this. Now, that same man, John, along with Peter, are sent by the apostles to Samaria with a totally different kind of fire from heaven. And their visit, the apostles' visit, is also really vital for us to understand what's happening here in Acts chapter 8. See, the, the apostles, as we read this book, they're not sent to investigate everything. Can you imagine how crazy that would be for 12 men to just chase around thousands of disciples as they spread out around the world just to confirm everything or, or lay hands on everyone? They're not sent to investigate everything. They are sent when the gospel crosses another significant barrier. They are sent when something new has happened. And we'll see the same thing with Cornelius in Acts chapter 11. We'll see the same thing later in Acts chapter 11 when there are Greek people in Antioch who come to trust in Jesus. Acts chapter 8 is, in other words, a Samaritan Pentecost. It's a Samaritan Pentecost, most likely marked by some of the same external manifestations of the Holy Spirit that we saw in Acts chapter 2 back in in Jerusalem. And it happened that way, and it happened with two of the apostles, Peter and John, present, so that it is evident to everyone, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the same Holy Spirit empowering Jesus' church in Jerusalem now empowers the expansion of that church in Samaria. The Apostle Paul will go on to write in Ephesians chapter 4, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So no, the norm of the Christian life is not a second experience, a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. The norm is a single experience where we believe and are baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. 
And I say that to you today to say this. If you have put your faith in Jesus, if you've been baptized, don't doubt that. And don't let others who have different convictions, sincere as they might be, but misguided, convince you that you are lacking something so substantial in your faith. You are not. If your faith is in Christ, you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. It's just that in pivotal moments like this one, where there was real risk that men and women would receive Christ, but fail to receive each other, God interrupts that norm so that everybody involved will understand These dividing walls of hostility, thousand-year-old walls, have been broken down. Jews, these are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Samaritans, these are your brothers and sisters in Christ. You belong one to another. Do we perceive the church the same way? Do we perceive the church the same way? We've made the landscape of this so much murkier in our day with countless denominations and networks and sub-networks and tribes and all kinds of things. And I'm not saying that there aren't important differences and important convictions that we need to wrestle with. I am saying that if another image bearer of God has believed in Jesus and has been baptized for the forgiveness of his or her sins and therefore has the Spirit of God dwelling in them, let's recognize them as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Let's recognize them as such. If the Jews can recognize Samaritans, if Samaritans can recognize Jews, then certainly we can recognize the one spirit at work across cultural and ethnic and racial and denominational lines in our day. As they make their way back to Jerusalem then, Peter and John proclaim the gospel to even more Samaritans. I don't think they would have done that had they not experienced this Samaritan Pentecost. We'll see in just a couple chapters, Peter is not eager to share the gospel beyond the Jewish people. He's not eager to do that. He's very reluctant to do that. I don't think they would have gone preaching to these villages in Samaria if not for this. But as God used Philip, he now uses Peter and John to likewise proclaim the gospel to many, to many. Just as important, though, is proclamation to one. One. And so third, let's look at this last section of Acts chapter 8. Again, prompted by the Spirit, Philip heads south. He was in the, formerly in the north in Samaria, now he's south. The 60-mile road between Jerusalem and Gaza. And there, he meets an Ethiopian eunuch. This man is an important civil servant. He's the treasurer of the queen of all of Ethiopia. And he's just come, we read there, from Jerusalem, where he traveled to worship. So this man is either a Jewish convert or what would have been known as a God-fearer. That is, one who worshipped God but had not gone through all of the ceremonial rites to formally convert to Judaism. Most likely, he's a God-fearer. But we also see very quickly, in two significant ways, he's an outsider. He's an outsider. First, and most obviously, He's an Ethiopian, presumably a black African. He's not from Jerusalem. He's not from Judea or Samaria. He's from the end of the earth. One scholar commented that in the Mediterranean world at this time, Ethiopia was considered, quote, the extreme boundary of the habitable world in the hot south. So at least according to the perception of that day, the end of the earth. And second... He's a eunuch. He's a eunuch. 
It was a common practice in many civilizations throughout history, up until not that long ago, actually, to remove the sexual organ of any man who would serve the royal court or would serve the royal family. But that meant, at least for Jewish men and women from their perspective, Deuteronomy 23 verse 1, he would have been excluded from the assembly of God's people as a eunuch. So he is an outsider racially, geographically, and he's also an outsider sexually, not able to be part of the assembly of God's people. But outsider though he may be, this man is clearly pursuing God for God's sake. And if nothing else, hearing about Simon in Samaria sets up a a crazy contrast to what we see from this man. His motive is pure. He's undertaken this long, expensive pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He's bought also at great cost, because it was not cheap to make copies in that day, a copy of the scroll that includes the prophet Isaiah. And he's now reading that scroll and eagerly desiring to know what God has revealed through Isaiah. So this is what we might call a divine appointment. A divine appointment where a person is receptive to and hungry for the things of God, like this Ethiopian eunuch. And so the Holy Spirit prompts one of Jesus' followers to step in at just the right moment. Philip runs up to him in this chariot, and he sees him, he actually hears him, reading from Isaiah 53, this passage about the suffering servant. This passage that didn't really make sense until it made complete sense in Jesus. That someone could be crushed by God, not for his own sin, but for the iniquity of others. And that by crushing him, God would heal the wounds of his people. So beginning with this text, Philip proclaims the good news of Jesus. And then as they continue on their journey, they come to water, the eunuch says, what prevents me from being baptized? Now, we don't hear this disconnect because we're so far removed from this. But the original audience, and especially any Jewish man or woman that heard the book of Acts being read, might be prepared to hear, what prevents me from being baptized? Well, you're an African, or you're a eunuch. I'm really glad you want to follow Jesus. I'm really glad you believe this stuff, but you can't be part of God's people that way. But what does Philip say? He doesn't say anything. Why? Because nothing keeps this man from being baptized. Nothing keeps this man from being baptized. And perhaps, perhaps, they had read far enough in that scroll of Isaiah, a couple more chapters to Isaiah 56. And if they had, they would have read this. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. In Acts chapter 8, an Ethiopian eunuch is given an everlasting name, a name that is better than sons and daughters. Nothing prevents him from being baptized. Is that any less significant than when Philip or when Peter and John proclaimed the gospel to many in Samaria? Not at all. 
Not at all. God, our God, is a God who cares about the many and wants the gospel to be known by the many, but a God who cares about the one. This persecution that scatters the church and it, it propels the good news of the gospel across these hostile dividing lines of Jews and Samaritans. And at the very same time, propels the gospel to this one image bearer of God, formerly excluded, but now welcomed into Jesus' one church. And all of this is just a glimpse of Philip's experience. One disciple among hundreds of scattered people. All of which to say, Christian, Christian, you have the same Holy Spirit dwelling in you. You have been given the Spirit of God for this. To seal you in Christ, a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance, yes and amen, but also to empower you to proclaim the gospel, to be one who bears witness to the good news of Jesus. Some of us will have opportunity to do that with many. Maybe that's through an event, through a, a class at your school, through a presentation at work, through an online platform. And if you do, and as you do, praise God for those opportunities to proclaim the gospel to many. But just as significant, and something that all of us have had and will have opportunities for is to proclaim the gospel to one. So ask God to provide for you, because the Spirit of God dwells in you, to provide for you divine appointments, like Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's prompts. And when the Spirit does prompt, send that text message, make that phone call, set up that time for coffee or conversation with a person. Maybe even right now, in this moment together this morning, the Holy Spirit is prompting you and bringing someone's name to your mind. Someone that you would long to see come to put their faith in Jesus. If there's a name that comes to your mind even now, don't ignore that. Don't ignore that. Like Philip, whether it is with many or with one, wherever he finds himself, he is always thinking, Wherever I am and whoever I'm with, these are people that God desires to bring into his kingdom. And I am here empowered by having the indwelling spirit of God within me to be part of that process. So because Jesus is the suffering servant, because by his wounds we are healed, and because he has one church and in his crucified flesh has broken down the dividing walls of hostility, wherever you find yourself, and however you found yourself there, may you proclaim the name of Jesus to the many and to the one. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. O Lord, our God, you have given to us the glorious gospel of our risen Savior and Master. We rejoice in that gospel, we rejoice in what that means for us, that the very Spirit of God dwells within us because we have come to know and to love and to follow Jesus. So we pray now that you would grant that as we have joyfully received this good news for ourselves, that we would likewise joyfully share it with others, and that in all of that, that we would ever give glory to you, by whose grace alone we are what we are. Thank you for the way your gospel makes one church. We rejoice that we are part of that one church. Even now as we come to this table, help us to not only remember your sacrifice, to anticipate 
your, the consummation of your salvation, but also to come as one to this table, to remember that all the things that in former times would have divided even us in this room, we are one in Christ. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.